This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Monday, September 28, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit is Donald Trump's pick to replace the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. What does her relatively large body of work indicate about her predisposition if confirmed? Casey Maddox is vice president for legal and judicial strategy at Americans for Prosperity. We spoke yesterday. You know, I think the best answer uh, about where she is philosophically is you, you begin with what she says about where she is philosophically, and then you check that against her actual jurisprudence. So you begin there. What she says about herself philosophically is that she is in the mold of Justice Scalia, that his uh, philosophy is her philosophy. Um, at least, you know, obviously Justice Scalia um, had some important shifts, I, I think, over his time on the bench. But if you if you look at that, especially his his later years and when she clerked with him on, I think that uh, demonstrates a judicial philosophy that is pretty rooted in an originalist understanding of the Constitution, uh, trying to, to seek to understand the text and its original public meaning at the time uh, the Constitution was enacted, uh, looking at the specific text of legislation that Congress enacted and how that was generally understood when it was written. And I think effectively what that does is it puts the burden on the legislature. It tells the Congress that it's your job to create the laws. Uh, You draft these things. We're going to apply these things to the best of our ability instead of uh, Congress essentially punting that job over to the Supreme Court and asking them to make the difficult decisions. So I think that you begin with what she says, and then from there, you can look at specific opinions. And you have cases like the, the gun rights case, the felon gun rights case, where she Look, that's going to be a controversial opinion, I'm sure, probably in a, in a lot of ways. But the most notable thing is how uh, she approaches that with a mindset to understand what the Second Amendment meant at the time. Uh, and I think if you apply that same sort of framework to other issues, and we have every indication that she would, uh, that that's, uh, that's a, a pretty rooted constitutionalist philosophy. So in some sense, you suspect that uh, Judge Barrett will not have very much time for Congress writing vague laws or delegating vague authorities to administrative agencies? Well, I, I say that I certainly hope so. And it, and it seems that way from her jurisprudence. I mean, you, you look at, uh, you know, someone who takes that kind of approach, who looks at the uh, the, the text of the Constitution and tries to give it effect um, is going to naturally come to the conclusion that it's Congress's job to be making laws and Congress shouldn't be punting that responsibility over to administrative agencies. When you take a, a case like uh, the Gundy case that the Supreme Court has had recently, where the, the non-delegation doctrine is up, the question essentially was whether Congress could put this um, pretty broad uh, grant of power over to administrative agencies to decide, Department of Justice, to decide whether or not someone would be a sex offender under the law. And of course, that's a, a challenging emotional um, case, right? Uh, and, and it comes up with someone who uh, is, you know, uh, the, the question is basically whether or not they should, should be labeled a sex offender or not. It's not a happy case. Um, but the legal Im- legal questions in that case are very, very important. And the court was split about whether or not to revive what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And what that does uh, is it would tell the agencies, it's your job to decide to, to confine these agencies. If you want them applying the law as an executive branch agency, you need to tell them what law to apply. You don't give them 
uh, a lot of leeway to make the law. And I, I think it's it's plausible to believe that someone with her philosophy, um, maybe someone who would uh, have reigned in the Department of Justice there um, and effectively reign in Congress. Now, on that note, the Affordable Care Act asks HHS to create all sorts of regulations. And that's one of the sort of flashpoints of her nomination is whether or not she would be amenable to that law and the way it functions. That's right. That is certainly going to be one of the main lines of attack against her. We've now had, I mean, how many cases have we had dealing with the the Affordable Care Act at the Supreme Court? So it's obviously not a challenging argument to make that cases involving the Affordable Care Act could come before her if she's on the Supreme Court. Uh, at this point, you could you could bet on that, right? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the, and this, this goes for a lot of the objections that will be made about what the outcomes of her decisions will be at the end of the day, even if the, um, you know, some of the, the fears are realized from people who, um, would be concerned about some of her decisions, even if those fears are realized, all that does is tell the Congress that they need to do the difficult job of finding a bipartisan compromise. Uh, finding a, a way to be able to achieve the objectives that they want to achieve um, and do it in a constitutionally appropriate way. And so uh, it, it leaves the lawmaking to the lawmakers. That's It's feasible. Um, unfortunately, the, the history of that issue particularly has been one of uh, one party control trying to make those decisions and the other party uh, trying to come up with, with ways to sort of chip away at that and uh, you know, I, I think it could very well be that if you put that burden back on Congress and it knows that there's no other way, no no one else is going to come riding to the uh, riding in and save you. It's it's your job to make the law. If you leave that to Congress, uh, maybe things change and we actually get a uh, better lawmaking branch. Is there anything in her jurisprudence that tells you that she has any affection or uh, disdain for? completely invented court doctrines that don't seem to follow uh, legislative uh, text or intent? Well, I'll, I'll give you one. And now this is with the, the caveat. Um, well, so one of those is qualified immunity, um, or at least that is that is my hope from looking at her record. And I, I will say that, you know, all of this is with the caveat that if you were a lower court judge, to a large degree, I do not want lower court judges, uh, even where I would agree with their decisions, deciding that they're going to set aside doctrines uh, that the Supreme Court has created. We have inferior courts, and they're inferior for a reason. The Supreme Court makes the decisions. And so, uh, you know, so when she's making decisions, you have to sort of uh, read with uh, a grain of salt to some degree uh, that her, her decisions on the Seventh Circuit have been limited by what the Supreme Court has already done. Uh, with that said, you have certain judges who think of qualified immunity, uh, who, who seem to have no difficulty at all uh, applying qualified immunity and allowing government actors, including the police, to um, to not be held accountable uh, for unconstitutional conduct. Judge Barrett, in just over two years on the bench, has demonstrated that that is not her. Uh, she has had several instances in which she has denied qualified immunity uh, and you know, I think that is a, a very hopeful sign. A judge who uh, is is willing to say that some of the actions that have come before her are clearly inappropriate for law enforcement officers and others, uh, and that they should be held accountable. And hopefully, if she has an opportunity on the Supreme Court, she would be 
an additional vote for uh, for reviewing that doctrine. Courts are always playing catch up when it comes to government uses of technology to surveil or observe citizens, the whatever doctrines that courts create to to deal with that or whatever tests they create in order to deal with that seem almost hopelessly outdated even just a few years after those are put into place. Is there anything in her academic work or her opinions from the bench that give you a sense of where she might view the appropriateness of the government surveillance? Sure. Well, you, you certainly do have some positive signs from her on the Fourth Amendment. Her decision in the United States versus Terry uh, that uh, cited it was unreasonable um, for police to to assume that someone else who came to the door was actually providing um, the consent to search a uh, suspect's residence. Um, and you know, several other decisions that have been positive, I think, on Fourth Amendment grounds. And so I think that does give you hope. That she and you know, as I mentioned earlier, the qualified immunity views. Uh, she certainly is not uh, bending over backward to try to uh, sort of help law enforcement in these cases in ways that are at the uh, leave leave people at the mercy of law enforcement to decide um, how the law is going to apply um, and ignore the Constitution. So, I, I think that is a, a positive sign, and uh, you know, I think. We'll have to see uh, as she addresses more of those uh, specific kind of questions exactly where she shakes out. But, um, you know, I think even just the, the recent cases from the court indicate that it's a pretty close split on, on those sorts of questions, as in Carpenter and others. So um, but I think she has the potential of being a, a, an additional vote uh, for a, a more restrained view of uh, police officers restraining them by the Constitution. You wanted to make note of uh, due process cases, uh, in particular, the case uh, at Purdue University. Uh, what was that case about and what did she have to say about it? Sure. This was a, this is an important case and it's one that is very likely going to be uh, brought up, I'm sure, over the next several weeks. Um, she wrote an opinion in a case coming from Purdue University where Purdue, as many public universities do um, or haven't in recent years, uh, had uh, had a student who was charged with sexual assault. And uh, Purdue's approach to that sexual assault claim was to have the, the alleged victim provide a statement. The, the victim never went before anyone who was trying to make a determination, including uh, never actually had to confront the, the student or the student never had an opportunity to confront her um, and never even spoke to the people who ultimately made the decision. And it turned out that apparently at least two of the people who made the decision said that they never even read her full statement, that they simply based their decision about his, his guilt um, by a preponderance of the evidence based on her initial accusation. Um, and so she wrote the opinion for the Seventh Circuit saying that this violated due process, that students in those circumstances are entitled to due process. And it's a it's significant opinion that has, has already had an effect on, uh, on the law in, in other circuits. Of course, the, the Trump administration has now rescinded the rule that uh, from the Obama administration that effectively required those those sorts of uh, kind of kangaroo courts on campus. Um, but, you know, again, I think that's a, a another very positive sign. And if you kind of link that up with her broader jurisprudence on uh, police officers, this is not someone who was bending over backward to provide due process to a student, but lacks that sort of approach to due process uh, in criminal cases, 
it's consistent across those. Uh, due process is important for everyone, and and you know, just in the the time she's been on the bench, she's she has opinions that demonstrate an understanding of that across those issues. Casey Maddox is vice president for legal and judicial strategy at Americans for Prosperity. We spoke yesterday. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>